Please be seated. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Growing up every Mother's Day, we would make my mother breakfast in bed. Now, this ended up being, especially when we were younger, a bit of a comedy of errors, as my father, who was not much of a cook, uh, tried to orchestrate us three little kids in the kitchen. Inevitably, there was uh, pancake batter splattered in various places, uh, accidentally eggs dropped on the floor, but somehow or another, we managed to get together a nice breakfast for my mother and brought it into her as she sat there like a queen wrapped in her nice bathrobe, lying in bed, waiting to be served. Now, my mother, uh, again, this is, by the way, one, one thing I do remember about this, I, as I was recalling these mornings bringing food to my mother, I remember this is the first time I ever had fresh-squeezed orange juice. Uh, growing up, we always had that frozen orange juice from Concentrate, which you don't really see anymore, but frozen orange juice Concentrate, but I remember the fresh-squeezed orange juice. I was like, yes, Mother's Day is good. I get a taste of fresh-squeezed orange juice. So I don't know what your various Mother's Day sort of celebrations were, Uh, But for us, it was a good way for us to give something back and to acknowledge my mother. I mean, so many mothers are like superwomen these days. I mean, my mother had a full-time job. She raised uh, three kids. Uh, She did the majority of the chores around the house, carried on her community and social requirements, and somehow did it in a way that seemed uh, effortless. And so it was nice on this Sunday to be able to say thank you to her. But I have to say, of all the things that my mother did for me, uh, of all the things that my mother did that I value looking back on it, uh, the single most important thing to me is that my mother loved me unconditionally. My mother, uh, like many people in her generation, was uh, someone who was very independent-minded. Again, she was of that generation that married a little bit later. Uh, She had her own profession, her own career, Uh, she met my father and they got married and my father, I remember him saying he was so overjoyed to see just how much of a natural mother she was that as soon as we appeared she just stepped right into the role and had that natural instinct to care for us and to love us unconditionally and you see that when you look at psychology and uh, various research how important that can be for building up a child's self-esteem Self-esteem, that, that important uh, trait that allows us to have the confidence to, say, stand up and preach before people, or have the resilience to come back from uh, things that might knock us down, or have the courage to take a risk on a new venture or try something different, uh, to be able to stand up in a social situation uh, and be able to be yourself. All of that grows out of uh, a sense of self-esteem, and nothing is more important for that than a parent's love. And as I got older, though, I realized that not everyone uh, was as lucky as I was. Not everyone was as fortunate as I was. Uh, I remember when my my last job before divinity school, I was a liquor salesman. Um, It's a true statement, true story. I can tell you the rest of the story some other time. (laughs) And my boss was this guy named Bill Walsh. 
And Bill is your, he would walk out of central casting for a liquor salesman. I mean, this guy was a chain smoker, a very heavy drinker, a gregarious personality, a very hard worker, hard driving guy. And I remember being uh, on the road with him because we were on the road going from venue to venue quite often. And again, he would just sit there with a the window rolled down, chain smoking, and just talking the whole time. And I remember, uh, you know, at one point him talked, he, he mentioned something about his daughter. And he said how uh, he, I, 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 I still, this still blew me away. He said how he was just like, yeah, well, she's going to have to pay for her own college. I paid for my college, she'll have to pay for hers. And it was the first time I'd ever heard a parent not want to do everything they could for their child. I'd never heard that before. Uh, and Bill had a very bad relationship with his, with his wife um, and didn't have a great relationship with his daughter. And, but even though he had plenty of money to do it, he didn't want to actually provide for, for his kids uh, in the same way that I was provided for and that he could have done. When I worked in a church in Iowa, uh, two of the longtime members, um, after their uh, biological kids had grown, they ended up adopting... Uh, a child out of foster care uh, who was a teenager. And this is a teenager with a number of behavioral uh, and emotional difficulties. So it was certainly a challenge that they willingly took on. And uh, when I knew them, uh, this child was uh, on his own uh, in, the same, in the same town, and he ended up uh, having a child with his coworker at Burger King. And they weren't married. And I remember the, these uh, church members... Uh, really wanting to be good grandparents uh, for this child. So they, uh, I mean, this, and this is where I, again, it's, it's quite a lesson. When you, when you work as a minister in a church, you see different things that open your eyes. Uh, for this single mother working at Burger King, there are really very few options for childcare. And the options that exist aren't exactly options you want your child to be in, but she didn't have any other option. Here she was, a mother that wanted to love her child, but there was no instruction on how to be a good mother. And she didn't have the financial resources or the support at home to do it. Thankfully, these church members uh, said, uh, listen, we will pay for good child care uh, if in exchange you allow us to raise Lamar in the church on Sundays. So I sat down with the mother at one point doing baptism preparation and, again, had the chance to hear her story. And it just struck me, you know, through no fault of her own, how radically different that little child's life was going to be than mine was. And in addition to maybe not getting unconditional love, there are other things that can undermine our self-esteem. That's why that's so important when we're growing up, why that parental love matters so much. I mean, you, you, you go to school, and if you're not a superstar academic, if you're not a superstar athlete, if you're not super popular, life can be pretty hard when you're going to school. And your self-confidence and self-esteem can be constantly knocked one time after another after another. And it doesn't stop when you go out into the workplace. I mean, how many of you had to, have had a situation where you do something at, at, at work and you don't get recognized for it or someone else takes the credit? Or perhaps you have a boss who thinks that the way to motivate you is to berate you constantly? It happens all the time. And you can have uh, pressures at home. Sometimes you have a spouse or other person who has this great talent for undermining you for hey, these little comments that just build up over time that get underneath your skin that make you feel really small. Oftentimes, those who know us best have the best capacity for hurting us. 
And, we need, and also in society more broadly. Society can be uh, very harsh to especially certain groups of people. Yesterday I was at an event at Resurrection Metropolitan Community Church, uh, not far from here, that was an event, uh, a listening event, uh, for the black transgender community. <clears throat> and if you want to know a group of people that are as uh, discriminated against as any uh, in society today, it is probably the uh, black transgender community. There have been uh, 10... Uh, people of color, transgender people of color who have been killed in hate crimes just so far this calendar year. And yet, how often do we even hear about it? And so there we were listening to the stories, and at, at, at one point, one of the women on stage spoke up, and because they were, they were giving concluding remarks, and again, the moderator asked, is there anything you want to add? And this one woman said, she said, you know, every time I get up in the morning and go out of my house, I have to just put on an armor to prepare for the glances that I get for the snide comments that come up, uh, for the little slights that happen every point in my day. And she said, and then I'll get home uh, at night and I'll strip down, into, strip down naked and get into the shower and I just can't wash them off. They just are constantly there. And this is where God can play an interesting role in this whole mix. One of the things that, you know, those of you who've been... Uh, worshiping with us the time that I've been here, know that uh, when I first started, we were talking about how we deal with sin in the church. Now, we're all sinners, obviously. We all do things that are wrong. Uh, We are all selfish in ways that we shouldn't necessarily be. We can be cruel in small ways and large ways. I mean, we're all sinners. And it's important for us to be able to call that out for ourselves so that we can strive to be better. It's also important to name sin so that we can call it out on other people or we can name injustice when we see it and try and strive for something better. But at the same time, calling out that, using that language of sin can be very harmful. Let's say you walk into church feeling beaten down anyway and then all of a sudden this language of sin comes up. It can just trigger all sorts of emotions. When I was working as a chaplain at Harvard, we started this student service in the evenings. And I remember this one student from New York City, uh, she began worshiping with us and uh, she decided to get baptized and I baptized her. And then all of a sudden she stopped attending church. And I went and I, I sat down with her uh, in my office and asked, I said, so what's going on? Uh, you know, what, what am I missing? And she said, uh, she was, uh, she's somebody who suffered from a very severe eating disorder. And so severe, her anorexia was so severe that she had to be in an inpatient care facility uh, for the whole summer just so that she could maintain her weight. And she said, John, when I come in and we do our period of confession at the beginning, I just feel that God is judging me so much, I just can't focus on the rest of the service and I leave feeling so awful. That with all the other things going on, with all of her... Uh, all the things that are undermining her self-confidence, her image of herself, just that extra bit of having a feeling that judgment of God was just too much for her to bear. Now, 1 Peter, our reading for today, uh, is an early letter to Christians in the church. And it's a letter, when you you look at chapters, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, you can see that the letter is primarily directed at uh, women and slaves. Those are, those are some of the prime audiences. In the early church, oftentimes it was people uh, who were more on the margins of society uh, who became Christians. And this put them in a difficult situation because in ancient Rome, uh, usually it was the head of the household that determined what the religious life was going to be in that household. 
So if you were a wife, if you were a child, if you were a slave and you were a Christian, uh, you ran a risk of being at odds with the sort of paterfamilias, the father of the house. And so part of a good section of First Peter is encouraging these people to just, don't worry, just go along to get along in those situations. But before, the, before Peter gets to that, he has this amazing bit at the beginning where he lifts up the joy of the fact that these people are new Christians. And this culminates in this passage in chapter 2 where Peter is referencing various Hebrew Bible texts in order to reinforce his statements. And I love the, the climax in chapter 2. He gets to this passage where he says, You are uh, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. The same thing that God told Moses in Exodus 19 to pass along to the Israelites, Peter passes along to these Christians on the margin saying, whatever you do, don't, don't forget that. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received loving kindness, but now you receive loving kindness. One of the reasons why I, or probably the major reason why I stopped having some sort of confession of, of sin in this church, in the brief amount of time that we had it, <laughs> I stopped it. Uh, one of the big reasons I stopped it is just for this. It's like there's one thing I want you to know when you come into church. It's that you are God's people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. I want you to feel that. I want you to know that in your soul so that regardless of what else might be going on outside, I don't know what a lot of your situations are this past week. I don't know what you went through. I know some of them, but not, not most of them. I want to make sure that no matter what happens, when you come in here, you know that statement in your heart. You are God's people. Just, uh, just yesterday, I was looking through again, once again, uh, Howard Thurman's great classic, Jesus and the Disinherited. And there's this great, uh, there's a lot of great sections of that book. And there's this one section that I, I think I've alluded to before, but it just stuck in my mind so much when I was thinking about this sermon. Here's Thurman telling a story about his grandmother who was uh, born a slave. Um, and she, again, the, the, the master, the, the slave master they had didn't allow them to get, have their own worship services, but they'd have them in secret anyway. And uh, Thurman describes how like, his grandmother would talk about how this you know, minister would sneak in and, and, and give them a sermon. And she's like, and he'd always end... And here she would get all worked up. She'd always end by getting up and saying, you, you are not slaves. Uh, you are not, you know, then he, she, he would use the N-word, which I, I will avoid. <laughs> you, know, you are God's children. That here are people on the absolute margins of society in the midst of slaveholding South, and they would sneak in and have it, and the one message they wanted to say is like, regardless of what your master does to you, or how many times you've been hit by him, and regardless of how many times you've been degraded in various ways, or raped, or whatever else it may be, just remember that you are God's children. And again, 50 years later, it would still just shake her with emotion of how impactful that was for her. Now this is, uh, this is Mother's Day, and just as we can lift up and I can lift up uh, the great experience that I have with my mother, uh, the great love that I felt with my mother, it's important to acknowledge in this space that not everyone has felt that same kind of love from their mother. Uh, that some people have had estranged relationships from their mother, have difficult relationships with their mothers. Uh, perhaps your mother has passed away and you never had a chance to reconcile with her. 
and also as a mother acknowledge the struggle of what it is to be a mother. It's not very easy. It's not always full of all sorts of joy. There are ups and downs. Oftentimes you don't know whether you're doing the right thing. Uh, And then there are people that would love to be mothers uh, who haven't had the chance to be for one reason or another. In this society, especially on this day, we lift up motherhood as being sort of the be-all and end-all. You know, what, what does that mean for those who are not mothers, either by choice or because they couldn't be? And so on this day, while we lift up mothers and celebrate all that mothers are for us, and I certainly celebrate that, we also lift up and say that this, in this place, here, regardless of what that situation is, there's that reminder that you are God's people. That you are, in fact, a royal priesthood. Now, I know when you look around the room, that can be kind of hard to believe with some of the folks that are <laughs> kind of a motley crew to be a royal priesthood. But it's something this week that I want you to bear in your minds. That as you go through various things day to day, as you might feel various slights, as certain things might cut you down, remember that you are, a, are part of that royal priesthood. You are a part of that holy, holy nation. You are a chosen people. Let that shine through. Let that sense of God's love shine through in your interactions with others. And you will live into that reality. For once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received loving kindness, but now you have received loving kindness. I hope in this wonderful week of May, you can share that broadly with others.